staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell, and we start this week by staring into the abyss of negativity, and what might be staring back at us is not pretty. What if you only identified yourself by the very worst things you have ever done in your life? You would probably lead a miserable life filled with nothing but regret and apologies. The whole process would be pointless and without any learning from the past. So, what if that is your national identity, the identity of your nation being based on nothing but its horrible past? What if your national identity is one of regrets, rooted in the act of apologizing, and all decisions are based on righting past wrongs? Some may see this as having the potential for justice, as a kind of historic reckoning, a way to come to a resolution with a sordid past. At least that seemed to be the hope in places like Germany, but instead in practice, something very different has taken place. And it is a warning to all of us who only focus on the worst of ourselves and the effect it has on our identity. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with philosopher and writer Susan Neiman, who wrote the New York Review of Books essay, Germany on edge in recent weeks, Germany's reflexive defenses of Israel and suppression of its critics have assumed a fevered pitch. Susan is the director of the Einstein Forum in Germany. The Einstein Forum is a foundation of the German federal state of Brandenburg and serves the public as an open laboratory of the mind. Underlying the Einstein's Forum's programming, uh, along with the books and articles published by, our, by their staff, is an abiding belief that thinking has a purpose besides advancing scholarly and scientific knowledge. It must provide orientation, foster curiosity, and inspire creativity. Moreover, like Albert Einstein himself, it must be committed to social responsibility. In espousing these ideals, the Einstein Forum works to restore Potsdam's traditional role as a center of enlightenment thought. Find out more about the Einstein Forum at einsteinforum.de. Susan is the author of several books, including most recently her first novel, Nine Stories, a Berlin novel. She is also the author of Left is Not Woke, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil, Why Grow Up, Subversive Thoughts for an Infantile Age, Moral Clarity, a Guide for Grown-Up Idealists, Evil in Modern Thought, an Alternative History of Philosophy, and others which have been translated into 15 languages and have won prizes from, among others, Penn, the Association of American Publishers, and the American Academy of Religion. Susan has written extensively on the Enlightenment, moral philosophy, metaphysics, and politics. Her work shows that philosophy is a living force for contemporary thinking and action. She's been a member of the Institute for Advanced Study in, at Princeton, a, a fellow at the Rockefeller Foundation Study Center in Bellagio, and a senior fellow of the American Council of Learned Sciences. She is now a member of the Berlin-Brandenburg Academy of Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. Her shorter pieces have appeared in the New York Times, New York Review of Books, like today's piece, The Globe and Mail, The Guardian, Die Zeit, Der Spiegel, The Frankenfurter Alleman Zeitung, and other many other publications. You can find out more about Susan at Susan-Neiman, that's N-E-I-M-A-N.com. Producing is Chris Colfan. Chris, how are you? How was your weekend? 
Oh, it was uh, it was really good. I was uh, help. I helped block a part of a uh, Lakeshore Drive uh, in regards for uh, to demand free Palestine. So uh, that was a lot of fun. That did it work? How successful? Um, were you? the cops were trying to barricade us, and we were, you know, we respectfully went around them, and some were able to. Some of the cops were able to block a portion, but then people kind of swerved around and. Ended up blocking Lakeshore Drive. I mean, there were, you know, angry people in traffic, but there's also, sure. you know, people dying in Gaza. Too, right, so. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and Dan, Dan Kugler is also with you today. He is shadowing you as you produce. Uh, Dan, what's new about you? Anything new in your world? The shadow knows. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, actually went across the street over the weekend to Adley Hairstyle, which is open till 10 p.m. You got your haircut? Is, yeah. How much? Uh uh, 25 bucks for a haircut and a shave. Oh, wow. I used to go over there all the time. Uh, I would always get a $15 haircut there because they charged $8. But I was like, ah, that's worth $15. Then it went up to $10, and I was like, you know, that's worth $15. Then it went up to $15. I stopped getting my hair cut. So uh, great to hear from both of you. Great to have you both here in studio. It's a short week here on This Is How. We only have two live streaming shows, only two guests. So if you listen to the full four hours of shows on WNUR, Chicago Sound Experiment, or on Beware the Radio out of London in the United Kingdom at BewareTheRadio.com, as this is the beginning of the holiday season here in the United States, our final interview that we are going to be playing will be a conversation we had back on Christmas Eve, Eve 2017. And that discussion was with historian Judith Flanders on her book, Christmas, a Biography. As Judith said during that interview, the real core of Christmas is nostalgia. It's wanting to believe there was a better time because, of course, that allows us to believe there will be a better time again. So we're looking back to the perfect days of our childhood or looking back to a perfect time of magic Christmases. Norman Rockwell's 1950s drawings, for instance, even though Rockwell himself looked back to the perfect Christmases of the 19th century, and in the 19th century, people looked back at the perfect Christmases of the 16th century. That interview was selected by listeners as one of their favorites of 2017, and we had already programmed our year-end best-of series, so we played it the following year during the Best of 2018 interviews. We want to know what your favorite interviews were this year, 2023, who your favorite guests were, and if we play your suggested interview, we will thank you personally on the show during our upcoming best of 2023 series you can email us your suggestions at chuck at this is hell.com or you can send them to us via facebook or comment at our facebook post on the subject at facebook.com slash this is hell radio or at the announcement on our facebook group page welcome to the hell hole or in our discord community or on x at this is hell radio or at patreon if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell we want to know who you learned from the most what conversations you can't stop thinking about, the ones you can't get out of your head, the discussions that had the biggest impact on the way you view the world in 2023. Tell us who were your favorite guests, what were your favorite interviews, and together with you, we can program the best of 2023, which is a great way to introduce your family and friends. Listening to those shows, great way to listen or to introduce
introduce your family and friends to the show by tu- turning them on to the year's very best of This Is Hell. If we play your suggestion again, we'll thank you on air. Also on WNUR and Beware the Radio, we are going to be filling out the four hours of content this year by playing a bonus moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This one is from December 17, 2020, during the first year of the pandemic, only three weeks before the January 6th uprising, and it's called This must be the season of the wish. Chris, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, This week's question from hell is, what obvious reality do you insist in denying in spite of all evidence? So that's a rollover from last week. We didn't get a chance to name a winner last week, so we are rolling it over for a second week. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, they get their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. All you have have to do is check out all of our stuff at thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at the same places. You can tell us your favorite guests and interviews of 2023. That's at our Facebook page or our Facebook group, uh, Welcome to the Hellhole, or Twitter, or Patreon, or Discord, or via email. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Chris has this week's hangover cure. Uh, This week's hangover cure. Um, this This week's hangover cure is not paracetamol or electrolytes nationthailand.com posted an article last week with the headline using paracetamol to cure a morning hangover is a bad idea paracetamol is what we here in the u.s call acetaminophen as in stuff like lenol Tylenol. Tylenol. Yeah, sorry, that's a typo on my part. Okay, sorry. Um, There was a medical term I didn't understand, (laughs) sorry. Uh, The article states that paracetamol, as powerful as it is for reducing day day after headaches, it is not a recommended remedy. Pharmacists warn that paracetamol is broken down in the liver by the same enzyme as alcohol. Anyone who drank the night before will not be doing their liver any favors by taking this painkiller. Enforcing the liver to work overtime, paracetamol inhibits the body's natural ability to filter alcohol out of the system, according to Germany's Federal Association of Pharmacists. And while experts at the U.S. Mayo Clinic say that time is the only sure cure for a hangover, there are still a few things you can do to feel better. One way to cure your headache is to take magnesium and apply a few drops of peppermint oil to your forehead. (laughs) Who knew? Germany's Federal Association of Pharmacists adds, taking electrolytes to prevent a hangover doesn't work. That makes this week's hangover cure not paracetamol or electrolytes, but instead try magnesium and pepper oil. And the fact that it's from a German uh, state organization is completely coincidental. Coming up, reckoning with Germany's national identity and its history. Chris will have our Patreon, I'm sorry, our uh, responses to our question from hell in our Discord community. We'll tell you what happened on last week's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll share with you uh, who the rest of this week's guests will be. And Dr. Sebastian Vuper, who has a PhD in history, has an all new past inside the present when he offers the historical context of the past. We need to have a better understanding of the present. Chris, what is uh, Seb talking about during this week's past inside the present? 
Seb dives into the history of Zionism, which is less straightforward than you might think. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And imagine a life that is focused on nothing but grief. An identity that is all about grieving. An identity of grief that defines the nation you live in and the people who you are. Well, you don't have to imagine because for many, that is life in Germany. Here to help us have a better understanding of Germany's national identity and what it can teach us, philosopher and writer Susan Neiman wrote the New York Review of Books essay, Germany on Edge in recent weeks, Germany's reflexive defenses of Israel and suppression of its critics have assumed a fevered pitch. Welcome to This Is Hell, Susan. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, I can hear hear you great. Uh, This is such fantastic writing. Your work is always so good. I I see it a lot at the New York Review of Books. I really appreciate you being on the show this week. And I guess my first question is, I I have got like 60 questions written for you, and I'm just going to ask one off the cuff. Uh, What has changed since October 7th? What was German national identity like before October 7th? And do you think it has changed since October 7th? October 7th. Well, what we've seen is a hardening of the lines. Uh, and I, I described them in the first piece I wrote for the New York Review on this subject. I think they called it uh, Historical Reckoning Gone Haywire. And what we've been seeing in the last three years in Germany as a well-meant but wrong response to the fact that we have a far-right party that gained enough votes to sit in parliament and is gaining more votes all the time. Um, The German government made a series of mistakes, which consisted in the short, I mean, the, the very shortest version is looking to repentance for its past, its Nazi past, which is quite genuine but refusing to look at the present uh, of what's going on in Israel and Palestine and really not thinking about the future. The problem with the German, you know, they were the first country ever to put their national crimes uh, into an essential part of their national narrative. And that may seem like a good idea. And I thought it was a good idea. I read a book called Learning from the Germans uh, five years ago. But when you focus too much on past crimes at the expense of the present, you're really only talking about yourself and not about what's going on in the world. And unfortunately, that's happening in Germany. I just went today to a meeting of about 35 people who represent different cultural organizations uh, to talk about what's been going on um, since October 7th. And that means everything from museums to theaters to, um, you know, various sorts of political groups, an awful lot of Jews and Muslims. Um, And everyone was talking about how afraid they are. Um, They don't know who they can invite. They don't know what they can say. We've been told that the word apartheid is a red line and cannot be used. Um, And as I pointed out, 
uh, you know, apartheid is a perfectly reasonable uh, legal concept. It just means two different legal systems for two different peoples. And if you spent five minutes in the West Bank, you know that it's true. You don't have to look at every human rights organization in the world that's used the term. I don't use the word settler colonialism. I understand there are arguments for it, but I think it confuses the history of the state of Israel with what happened in India or South Africa or Algeria, just very different sets of circumstances. But I, you know, I use the word apartheid. I've been to the West Bank with um, friends who are have been um, civil rights workers there for more than 20 years. But the government representative simply said, you can't use that word. And I, I said, can I have an argument for it? You know, just a taboo. There's a legal argument that's been made over and over for it. And, uh, you know, several other people tried to make the kinds of arguments that I was making. But it's just and it's just one example that happened to keep me busy for four hours this morning. Um, but there are many more. It's a continuation of the same policy that has been followed in the last three or four years that really wasn't the case in Germany before. Germany was actually um, in the early aughts, very active where we had a social democratic green government, very, very active in supporting um, peace between Israel and Palestine and uh, did an awful lot of things. But it's uh, it's not doing that now. In fact, I saw police video. Uh, I saw video of police telling demonstrators, "You are not allowed to say stop the war." So you know, well, like that. I think one of the, uh, something that people might not understand here in the United States is the relationship that the cultural institutions, like the cultural institution that you work with, that relationship with the state and the power that the state has over these kinds of cultural institutions to say things like using the word apartheid is a red line. So what is that relationship between the state and these cultural institutions and what impact can that have on public political debate? Well, it's a very deep uh and complicated relationship, which I uh, am quite grateful for because European countries in general spend a lot of public money on supporting culture in a way that the U.S. uh, could learn something from. Now, the claim is that they don't intervene in specific, uh, you know, as long as nobody's calling for violence, um, the claim is that we, the government gives money and the different cultural institutions are um, independent and able to decide to produce what they want and invite whom they want and so ever. And normally they've done a pretty good job of um, both funding without things being, you know, state determined. Okay. But since 2019, when the state passed a so-called BDS resolution, um, there have been calls to disinvite, calls to cancel things. Things have been canceled. People have lost their jobs, particularly if they're brown um, or black. Um, 
And there's a huge amount, of course, of self-censorship going on because uh, people are afraid. Um, have I answered that? Does that give a give a picture? Yes, it does. And so do you think that this anti-BDS position within Germany uh, by the state, do you think that is a, a canary in the coal mine when it comes to limiting expression within Germany or anywhere? There have been limits put on BDS here within the United States. Do you think that's a canary in the coal mine in limiting pu- uh, public and political debate? Oh, it very much has been. And I should say from the outset that I don't support BDS, but I think it's discussable. Okay. Um, And what immediately happened with this resolution, uh, when about 30, this was 30 different cultural institutions, uh, some of the people, same people were there today. There are lots of cultural institutions in Germany, um, which is, again, it's a good thing. some of us put out a statement protesting the way the resolution was being used, among other things, to force the resignation of the director of the Jewish Museum of Berlin, who does not support BDS. Okay, but uh, you know, a couple of things that the Israeli government intervened directly. Netanyahu called the Minister of Culture. Um, a couple of things that he said were considered to be uh, called BDS, uh, close to BDS, okay? Uh, they weren't. I mean, I promise you they weren't. Um, but basically, reasonable criticism that you can see published every day, you know, in the New York Times, which is not exactly a, you know, far left rag, or Haaretz, um, you know, which is a an Israel, the main uh, decent Israeli paper that's left. Stuff that you could see virtually every day in either of those publications um, was not tolerated. And then politicians or media would say, um, because of our past, we have to remember our past. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was the um, the point at which I not only began to worry about what was happening in Germany, but questioning the whole project of historical reckoning in general. You know, it just it can be very, very much abused. You write, how do we remember the parts of our histories we'd rather forget? You say it's not surprising that until quite recently, American school children learned to recite the beginning of the Declaration of Independence without ever learning that the founding fathers ignored African-Americans right to liberty and Native Americans right to life. Public memory is designed to create identities that people are proud to uphold. So what happens when that history is not something that would make anyone proud? Should we, and I know that these are, I mean, if there's a spectrum, this might be the two ends of the spectrum. Should we embrace it or should we erase it? I realize that binary kind of framing is very limited, but is there a place in between embracing and erasing that history that can be a better way for us to learn our lessons from the past to have a better future? Absolutely. It's a non-binary relation. And I quote the great Brian Stevenson, who I was um, fortunate to be able to interview uh, the creator of the National Lynching Memorial. And I I, I think I quote him in, in that article. I quote him many times on this. Um, his argument was, um, yes, we need the something like the lynching memorial, which is uh, the most 
uh, awesome, and I mean that in the literal sense of the word awesome, memorial I've ever seen anywhere. But we also need monuments to the people who fought against lynching and who fought against slavery. And he said, we specifically, we, there were white Southerners who fought up against lynching and against slavery, and you don't know their names. And if you remembered their names, you would have a different history uh, he was talking specifically about the South, of a different Southern culture of uh, fighting injustice as well as committing it. So I'm very much in favor, and I'm actually, my next book, I'm not quite sure when I'm going to finish it, is uh, about heroes and victims. Um, I think we very much need, uh, every nation needs heroes. Every nation needs to remember, along with a list of its crimes, and many nations have committed crimes. Um, there are probably few who, who haven't. Um, we also need to remember the people who stood up for uh, justice and against injustice. And that's the way to do it. The problem is with Germany, uh, I mean, there are really, really many people who call themselves I'm part of the, the perpetrator folk. Uh, I'm part of the perpetrator nation. Well, if you see yourself just that way, first of all, you're, you're going to have a pretty difficult self-image and national image. Um, you're also very likely to see the people against whom you committed crimes as just victims. And this is a problem in uh, in Germany where uh, Jews are not considered real Jews unless they focus on Jewish victimhood. They just cannot see Jews differently. And I worry sometimes that the historical reckoning, which I welcomed in the United States and still welcome and still think is a good thing, that if, if you turn the entire history of the United States into a history of uh, crimes. And if you see nothing but what the United States did wrong, and if you see the uh, heirs of those crimes as permanent victims, we're going to be in trouble too. So um, those essays were a way of talking about Germany, but also uh, a warning to, I've been studying and comparing uh, historical reckoning in both countries, gosh, I mean, I could say for 40 years, but seriously for a good 10. And um, I think we have a lot to learn from each other, but some of what we need to learn from the Germans at this moment is a warning. So does... Uh... Does our guilt here in the United States, uh, just as an example, I'm just trying to make certain that people understand the connection here. Does does our guilt here in the United States over slavery, for instance, does that erase all of our history of white abolitionism in the South? Because what I, what I would think the kind of history that we should be taught is, sure, here are the crimes of the past, but here are the people who stood up to those crimes in focusing on the crimes of the past. Do we forget about the people who stood up to those crimes? I think sometimes we do. Um, very much we do. Uh, white people died for um, African-Americans' rights. 
And, you know, we're moving into a discussion in the States which bothers me very much. And that's why I wrote my most recent book, Left is Not Woke, uh, where, you know, white people might be allies, okay? An ally is not the same thing as a partner or someone who believes uh, that injustice has been committed against a tribe that they don't happen to belong to and wants to get involved simply for the sake of justice, okay? An ally is somebody uh, who follows their own interests. And the suggestion is, you know, the only real activism that goes on is one tribe fighting for its own interests. That's not true, but that is often the story that is now being told in certain American circles. And I think it's a very dangerous one. I think it's very dangerous, too, because it also can eliminate the history of slave uprisings that were a very regular part of our history at that time. You write on this idea of uh, Germany's identity via its history not being inspirational. You write, it's easy to say that Germany had no choice, that the atrocities of World War II cried out for expiation, that is the making of amends. But for 40 years, very few West Germans saw it that way. Instead, they cultivated a narrative that cast them as the war's prime victims. It was one that mirrored the tales of American defenders of the lost cause. We lost the war. Our cities were in ruins. Our men dead or languishing in POW camps. We were hungry, just barely alive. And on top of it all, the Yankees had the gall to blame us for starting the war. So do Germans see themselves as the victims of World War II or even victims of a Holocaust that they may view as being forced upon them at gunpoint? Or do they see both? I don't, I don't know that anybody quite goes that far. Okay. But they, I mean, there may be there may be some who do, actually. Um, but um, I, I haven't met them. But what's, uh, what's true is that really for 40 years, they saw themselves as the worst victims of the war. And indeed, they did do a lot of suffering in the war and after the war. But, um, you know, people focus on their own suffering. It's sort of normal, I guess. Um, and it took a lot of work from civil society and grassroots groups and church groups and uh, intellectuals and students to force people to say, well, wait a second, yes, we suffered, but other people suffered more and their suffering was our fault. That was a big moment in 1985 when a West German president was able to say that. And, you know, I've been living in, in Berlin for most of the most of my life since 1982. So I've been here for a very long time. And I know a lot of people who talk about their Nazi parents or teachers or grandparents, but it took me a very long time to figure out. I knew they all felt guilty, but I didn't realize that they actually thought of themselves as victims uh, in, in that era. You also mentioned that few outside Germany knew how unwilling the country initially was to acknowledge its crimes. That most saw, or sorry, what most saw was West German Chancellor Willy Brandt kneeling in shame before the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial in 1970. Brandt was doing penance for his compatriots, though he himself had nothing to atone for, having left Germany 
uh, for exile in Norway months after the Nazis took power. To outsiders, his gesture made perfect sense, but most of his fellow citizens were appalled by his quote-unquote apology tour. Yes. What, what, what uh, was what you call Brandt's apology tour? Was that not directed for his dom- domestic audience? Was that for an international audience? Yes. Uh, it was for an international audience, but uh, I, I think it was absolutely genuine. Everything, um, you know, that we know about his uh, kneeling in front of the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial was quite spontaneous, that he felt overwhelmed. Um, what I also say in that article is that everybody knows the famous uh, Pastor Niemöller quote, first they came for the communists, but I was not a communist. And they came from the socialists, for the socialists. Uh, and he goes on and on about a line of people. And then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I, I didn't do anything. Um, what people forget is, first, they really did come for the communists. And then they really did come for the socialists. And Willy Brandt was a committed socialist and committed anti-fascist. And many of them left the country and went into voluntary exile. Many of them were arrested uh, and put in concentration camps. So, yes, I think that what I think Brandt was trying to do with that, what was actually a brave gesture, um, was to make a statement um, to an international audience, in particular a Polish audience, that's where he was, a genuine gesture of atonement, but also to try to carry his people along because what he knew and what Americans are shocked by, I was really shocked by when I heard it, um, he had campaigned for chancellor eight years earlier against the Christian Democratic Chancellor Konrad Adenauer. And one of Adenauer's campaign slogans was, what was Willy Brandt doing for 12 years outside Germany? (laughs) We know what we were doing here. Um, So to take the very thing that foreigners so much admired Brandt for um, and use it as a successful campaign slogan against him in 1962 uh, is a pretty strong statement about where general public opinion in West Germany was at the time. East Germany was different. So I think he was he he knew that he was taking a risk and, uh, you know, even just in going to Poland. And uh, he wanted to carry his country along. So in uh, East Germany, there was far less tolerance for any kind of fascism, as you point out in your article. And in schools, people or students were taught a very anti-fascist message. Was that anti-fascism within East Germany more than Soviet propaganda? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I've interviewed many, many people uh, on that subject. And I particularly tried to interview people who were dissidents against East, the East German government. And they all pretty much spoke with one voice. They said, you know, I could criticize everything else about uh, East Germany, but the anti-fascism was genuine. The problem is <laughs> that that was true of the first generation and maybe a little bit of the second generation But, you know, things that are government orders are government orders. And they start feeling uh, like they're forced on you and they start feeling, you know, you you know what other 
problems the government has. You also know that it instrumentalizes certain views and you uh, you stop taking it seriously in a certain sense. And what my worry is, and I'm giving a speech the day after tomorrow to um, a lot of politicians, um, what is happening with the enforced we stand by Israel right or wrong, um, whatever it does, because we murdered six million Jews in the Holocaust and therefore have to stand by the state of Israel, that this is the, it's become the same kind of forced automatic um, doctrine that people criticized about the East German anti-fascism. And it raises some very tricky points, you know, also for Americans about, you know, what kinds of doctrines you you want your your government to sort of force as part of national history and education. It's complicated, but it needs to be done with more care and nuance and less binaries than uh, it's currently being done, I fear, in either the U.S. or Germany. You write that the alacrity with which Germany responded to recent demands to face colonial crimes shows that, unlike Britain or France, it has developed a practice of historical reckoning that may have begun with Nazi crimes but can be adapted to others. Those who argue that the reparations for genocide in, say, Namibia or the restoration of stolen art to Nigeria are too little too late should ask themselves what Spain has done to acknowledge, let alone expiate the bloodiest colonial regimes in history. Many would like to see the U.S. have a reckoning with its past, while others are working hard to make certain that reckoning never happens and to censor any attempts at that reckoning. Was this reckoning in Germany also a partisan issue? Was there a culture war or at least a culture battle within a larger culture war with Germany's historical reckoning? Absolutely. It's gone on straight well, pretty much straight political lines. Um, let's say um, the Christian Democrats who've been in power for most of the time since the war absolutely were against historical reckoning of any kind. They said, let's forgive and forget and look towards the future and not talk about how many old Nazis we have in government jobs, which is very, very many, okay? And people I knew who went to school, say, in the 60s, uh, you know, did not learn much about the Nazi period at all uh, in in school. OK, um, so. It's. Um, and then, of course, Willy Brandt, who was a social Democrat, was the first German politician to actually make moves in that direction. And I think it's part of the reason, it's not the official reason, but it's part of the reason that he only had one term. And uh, there was an there was a lot of hostility towards it. Now, um, starting later at the very end of the 80s, you began to see a bit more, even from the Christian Democrats, of a sort of limited 
we have to support Israel and we have to be nice to Jews and um, we have to acknowledge that we did bad things to them. It still doesn't go as far as researching its own history and asking why Konrad Adenauer, who is a huge hero, is the first uh, um, chancellor of uh, West Germany since the war, um, why he could use that slogan against Willy Brandt. And don't we want to say something about that? When the Christian Democrats finally do that, I'll I'll feel differently about them. But at the moment, um, what you have, and we have this very far-right party that's gaining votes all the time, it came into power by saying, let's stop with the guilt business. Uh, you know, those 12 years of history, and I am quoting literally the founder of this party, were a speck of bird shit in German history, okay? So they, this far-right party, the the AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, um, has been, I mean, it's basically founded on two principles. Let's stop with the guilt business and let's keep out brown people, Okay. What's happened now is a really crazy, problematic thing that's actually happening all over the world. And um, Americans will know it from Steve Bannon and Donald Trump that you can be as racist as you like towards anyone else. As long as you swear you support the state of Israel, nobody can call you a Nazi, right? So this right-wing party actually used Netanyahu's favorite son as a poster boy um, to argue that the that uh, the EU is full of evil globalists. <laughs> so you have, um, you know, and and let's let's not make any bones about it. The Israeli government is moving further and further to the right. To it's at a point where many Israelis um, see very fascist elements in it. Okay. So right-wing uh, parties all over the world, from India to Hungary um, and many, many other places, feel like they can, uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking of inventing a term, Jew-wash their <laughs> racism by saying, uh, you know, we support everything done by the state of Israel, and anybody who doesn't is anti-Semitic. Um, and therefore, nobody can accuse them of being Nazis. And But they can, at the same time, uh, you know, be very racist towards everybody else. And one thing that the German government is doing right now, which is uh, scandalous, is blaming anti-Semitism on the Muslims in the country. Now, police statistics from the Ministry of the Interior say that 84% of all anti-Semitic crimes are committed by white right-wing Germans. But by, uh, you know, attacking Muslims, and talking about changing immigration laws and, you know, essentially firing um, black and brown people who have showed any sense of support for Palestinian rights. Um, they are trying to offload the problem 
on those brown people we shouldn't have let in the first place. And that's uh, a very dangerous form of uh, instrumentalization. We had less than a year ago, um, 3,000 policemen arrested 24 leaders of an even more far-right group than would ever get into parliament. Um, they don't even recognize the country. They they say that you know they want to reestablish a monarchy and that the country is basically still occupied by the Americans and it's not a legitimate German country, okay? Um, some of these people were actually planning a coup against the government. Um, they were, uh, you know, there were thousands and thousands of weapons that were found, and they're not all crazies. I mean, they'd found an, uh, some of them like QAnon, and they'd found a member of a minor aristocracy to call their king, but there was one former member of parliament, there was a judge. So um, this is a movement, people were arrested. Um, and they were clearly anti-Semitic. I mean, talked about the Rothschilds group, uh, ruling the world and so on and so on. But this was a coup in the planning. And you know, there are other instances of right-wing terror, again, mostly against brown people. Um, but uh, the people who are being targeted in the cultural world, in in the public media, um, uh, are, again, not right-wing uh, white Germans. I absolutely found that fascinating when I was reading that part of your article about uh, the relationship that the Netanyahu government has with the far right in Germany. That just made me stop my tracks and I had to reread it again. We are speaking with philosopher and writer Susan Neiman, who wrote the New York Review of Books essay, Germany on Edge. In recent weeks, Germany's reflexive defenses of Israel and suppression of its critics have assumed a fever pitch. You write, it isn't the absence of historical reckoning with the Holocaust, but a twist on it that has led today's Germany into a philo-Semitic McCarthyism that threatens to uh, throttle the country's rich cultural life. In the past three years, Germany's uh, historical reckoning has gone haywire as the determination to root out anti-Semitism has shifted from vigilance to hysteria. You write that when it comes to anti-Semitism in Germany, every application for grants or jobs is scrutinized for signs. Allegations of anti-Semitism, regardless of the source, serve as grounds for revoking prizes and job contracts or canceling exhibitions and performances. So to what extent do those who are alleged to be anti-Semitic to what extent do they have any due process and the ability to confront their accuser or to give any kind of defense to the allegations? Well, usually none. I mean, um, you know, people go through their social media and look at um, tweets often out of context. Um, you know, there was one case where a Palestinian German uh, doctor had been hired for uh, a job as a, a, a presenter of a science television show. And she was given a sort of a chance. I mean, she was um, certainly interviewed in the major press and she said, yeah, 
when she was 19, she had attended an Islamicist demonstration. I should say it was in the middle of the last war on Gaza, but okay, she had attended a, an Islamist demonstration. And in the uh, nine years since, she'd come to think that Islamism was wrong. She wasn't wearing a hijab anymore. She saw it as a very uh, problematic ideology. She had written and spoken against anti-Semitism. And all of that didn't make a difference. So in that one case, she got a chance and uh, the right-wing press went after her, and people are scared of it because it's still the most powerful publishing company in uh, in Germany. And so she uh, lost her job. But I, I mean, I think much more insidious and um, dangerous are the things that happened before anybody knows about it, that um, people are not even offered prizes. I mean, I've been in committees where this happened. I quit in uh, in uh, protest, but I didn't make my um, my uh, objections public. And I thought a lot about this. I agonized about it um, because, of course, there are people who say, "Oh, this isn't going on. You're you know, you're not giving us examples." Well, anytime you join a job committee or a prize committee or anything like this. You are sworn to secrecy about the deliberations, which is a good thing and in general, right? I mean, it's, you know, complicated things go on. But, um, you know, what that means is that many of the people who know that this is going on feel bound by their promise not to reveal deliberations. They feel bound, and so they can't make it public. So much of it happens in private before anybody gets to contest an allegation. And sometimes they're from very poor sources. Um, you know, a blogger um, who's not even a particularly famous blogger and whose uh, claims were contradicted by... Uh, the editor of Haaretz was a particular case that I um, was involved with. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's Macar uh, that is McCarthyism. That is the kind of thing that went on in the United States um, before McCarthy, starting with Truman. And one of the things that I've come to think about is, is that while America is doing a racial reckoning, we haven't really done a historical reckoning. We do not know enough about our political history, about the fact that um, up through the up till the middle of the 20th century, there was a strong, popular um, socialist movement in this country. Um, and it was completely repressed. The sad thing that is that it has also been posthumously repressed. Paul Robeson, who's one of my heroes, the great Black artist and activist, was a socialist. I mean, and I mean, he lived in the Soviet Union for years. He spoke perfect Russian. And his, although his father had been enslaved and escaped, 
he uh, he was first drawn into political action, not because of that, but because of striking miners in Wales, whom he met in London. Okay, so Robeson was an absolute internationalist, universalist, socialist. Um, but that's dangerous to say now. And so the recent, insofar as anybody remembers uh, Robeson, and more people should, um, insofar as he's being discussed, it's been as well, you know, he was an early civil rights leader, and the suggestion is he was a black nationalist. And well, we forgive him um, his socialism because after all, you know, socialists did stand up for black people before anybody did. But no, it was, you know, the, the two always went together for him. But socialism is, uh, you know, is such a taboo in the United States that nobody talks about the fact that Albert Einstein, who was also a good friend of Robeson's when everybody else shunned him, Albert Einstein was a proud socialist uh, till the end of his life. But we think of him as this funny looking guy with his tongue sticking out and forget the fact that he was uh, a, a very courageous, very engaged um, public intellectual who actually spent more of the second part of his life, um, you know, writing and being active and supporting other people and giving radio speeches and and all the things that public intellectuals do. Um, but that's been pretty much left out of the picture of Einstein. It definitely has. So uh, why are we, in your opinion, let's uh, focus here on the, we don't have to focus on the United States. In general, why are we more willing to confront our racial history than our political history why does the that political history seem to be a third rail when that racial history even even relative to that racial history well it's a very it's a very easy question it's um much easier to put more people of color into uh jobs and uh, you know on screen than it is to actually change a system, a, a vast economic system that's exploiting all of us. And that's part of the post-Cold War uh, story that we were sold. Let me recommend a fantastic book that I've just been reading by a historian called Penny Van Eschen, and it's called uh, Post-Cold War Nostalgia. And she describes how after 1991, after the end of state socialism, an awful lot of possibilities were open. People were talking about, you know, non-alignment and the end of the Cold War and uh, a post-war dividend where we could stop uh, spending so much money on the military and spend more money on things that people actually need. Um, and there was a... Um, there was a working together through uh, the economy and corporations, the government, and popular culture, which she describes very well, to make us all believe that, no, actually, um, there isn't another alternative. Uh, global neoliberalism is the only possible way to go because anything else leads straight to the gulag. 
And there were a lot of forces combining to tell that story in the 90s. And um, yeah, it's something that we really need to look at seriously. We had Penny on the show last year, our interview with ah, her. Uh, yeah, okay. she she was on to talk about her book, uh, Paradox of uh, Nostalgia. Uh, oh, sorry. That's what that's that's what I was thinking the subtitle. But yes, you're absolutely right. OK, I'm glad you had her. Yeah, she was. She was fantastic on last year's show and uh, in August, and uh, our listeners selected that as one of their favorite uh, interviews of the year. So uh, that was, yeah, really a fantastic. She was really great on the show, too. Uh, but you write about, uh, you mentioned the German-Jewish author Nell Palachek uh, recently writing only someone who has suffered and lost at least half their family in the Holocaust is considered a real Jew, as you were mentioning earlier. Is the belief that Jewish life is completely constituted, as you write, by the uh, Holocaust, is that view in and of itself anti-Semitic? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, is it anti-Semitic? Um, I mean, I, in a curious way, I would say yes. But of course, Germans don't see it that way at all. They think that they're responding to um, Jewish trauma. I mean, they're really thinking about their own guilt, um, but they think they're responding in a good way to Jewish trauma in the way I'm afraid that there are people in the United States who look at every African-American as a victim and, you know, don't pay nearly as much attention to those African-Americans who say, you know what, I'm not. And I resent always being treated as if I were. Um, but I should say myself, I started to say this because um, plenty of people have dismissed me here, um, although I speak almost perfect German and, and I've been here for a long time. Um, we shouldn't listen to American Jews because they don't understand the trauma of being a Jew in Germany. And I used to say, you know, I've been here longer <laughs> than some of the people who live, who've made that accusation have been alive. But recently I've started saying, you know, all Jews don't come from New York or uh, say Chicago. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia at a time when our synagogue was bombed. Um, there was still the memory of Jews being lynched before my time, but that was a strong memory. We were not considered as um, low life as African Americans, but we also weren't quite considered to be white people. And the reason that our synagogue was the one out of the three that was bombed, uh, the other three, uh, the other two were left alone, is that our rabbi, um, Jacob Rothschild, was a very strong supporter of Martin Luther King, okay? And someone who felt in the universalist Jewish tradition that it's precisely incumbent on us as Jews who were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's re repeated 36 times in the Bible. I just asked my rabbi. Um, um, you know, precisely because we were slaves and strangers in Egypt, it's our obligation as Jews to stand together with those who are strangers uh, or whose ancestors have been slaves anywhere. So um, that was, a by oh, by the way, I, I, you cannot, other people were, were 
feeling differently on January 6th. I was celebrating the election of the first black and Jewish senator together um, to uh, the Senate from Georgia, which actually saved the Senate for the Democrats, because I'm a hopeful sort of a person, but having grown up there, I could not believe that this was going to happen. And John Ossoff, uh, the Jewish senator from Georgia, um, belonged to the synagogue that um, you know started this tradition of working together with um, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And uh, Raphael Warnock, of course, is the heir to Dr. King in the Ebenezer Baptist Church. So those two places of worship have been working together since at least 1958 when the synagogue was bombed and they're still doing good work together today. Thank heavens. Uh, Susan, do you have time for three more questions? I do. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, So is criticism of Israel, the government of Israel, the Netanyahu government, is that considered anti-Semitism in Germany? And how concerned are you here that in the United States we may be losing our rights to free speech and assembly when that speech or assembly is critical of the Netanyahu government? You know, officially everybody will tell you, of course you can be critical of a government as long as you make sure that you're not, you know, condemning the nation to non-existence. So everyone will tell you that. But then um, it all comes down to the details. So, um, you know, as I said before, the word apartheid isn't usable in Germany. When Amnesty International uh, uh, introduced its uh, report, 200 pages, showing why um, they concluded that certainly uh, on the West Bank, we're talking about an occupied Uh, about an apartheid government, Um, the German chapter of Amnesty International distanced itself from it and refused to discuss it. And there was like there was almost no media discussion of that, for example. So that's that's one example. Um, And, you know, sort of gentle criticisms of uh, the Netanyahu government are allowed, but it's still felt that there's a taboo on very strong criticisms. They allow the strong, at least some media allow the strong criticisms to be voiced if they're made by Israelis. <laughs> so a bunch of Israelis writing things who know something about the German scene um, and that's allowed. But it's um, it's extremely difficult to get something printed um, you know, that's uh, the kind of crit- I mean, Tom Friedman is Tom Friedman a radical leftist? <laughs> <laughs> Tom Friedman has been writing great stuff in the New York Times on Israel Palestine, and um, nothing like that could be printed here. Nothing. So do you have any fear that that kind of thing is going to be happening here in the United States? Because some uh, legislators you know, are saying that they would like to put limits on the kind of uh, anti uh, Netanyahu, anti-Israeli government expressions. Look, I'm worried from all sides in the United States, frankly. Okay, I really am. Um, Let me tell you a a story, (laughs) anecdote. In during the Oslo 
um, negotiations, which we knew were going on. Uh, I gave birth to twin daughters, and I very deliberately gave one of them an Israeli name and one of them an Arabic name. And the girls were always quite proud. I mean, as soon as they came to consciousness and to understand what I was doing with that, they were always very proud of that. Even when they have fights with each other, they're always proud that they had these names. And as many disagreements as we have, we're on exactly the same page about Israel, Palestine. They're now grownups. But my daughter with a Hebrew name told her that her life changed on October 7th. She lives in the States at the moment um, because you know, she's she's certainly situates herself on the left. She's more woke than I would uh, like to be. But, um, you know, she's that's exactly part of the scene. She said she lost a lot of friends. Um, because they were actually celebrating the Hamas massacre as an act of liberation, okay? Um, now, she's totally supports a ceasefire now and has always supported Palestinian civil rights, actually learned Arabic. She's very talented linguistically. Um, but there is a strain of the, let's call them the post-colonialist left in the United States, and by the way, in other countries as well, that has decided, oddly, um, Israel belongs to the global north and Palestine be belongs to the global south, um, which shows you how silly those designations are. And um, we support anything from the the global south, no matter that majority of Palestinians don't support Hamas, no matter uh, you know we could uh, that lots of people from formerly colonized countries and their friends of mine from Nigeria and Ghana and India um, are very much against post colonial theory because they feel that it's um, well. It's a long story, but way, way too simplistic. The problem is um, post-colonial theory has been confused with anti-colonialism. So anybody who raises an objection to a point of post-colonial theory um, gets called an imperialist, which is quite silly. But um, there is a tendency, a trend now, um, since October 7th, which is quite scary and which does veer into anti-Semitism. I'm less concerned about, you know, ab abolishing particular slogans, but I am concerned that people look at the questions with nuance. There's not a problem with calling two things crimes against humanity. And we managed to do that at 9-11. Um, we managed both to be shocked and horrified by Al-Qaeda's attack on the World Trade Center and also to you know, violently, and not violently, but strongly protest the war against Iraq. Those are two possible things to do. And I fear that um, the international situation has become so tribalist that either you have to condemn 
Hamas and not talk about what's going on in Gaza or the other way around. And that's, it makes absolutely no sense unless you think we're all condemned to tribalism. It's that simplicity of picking sides. Like people think of the geopolitics as a sporting event and they're trying to determine which team they want to be a fan of. And it's just... I just it just bothers me, Susan. I've got one last question. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that because I gave an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago to the to the Financial Times, which they they took as a headline. You know, I hate the words pro Israel and pro Palestine. It's not a football match, people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Susan, uh, we've been speaking with philosopher and writer Susan Neiman. Wrote the New York Review of Books essay Germany on Edge. In recent weeks, Germany's reflexive defenses of Israel and suppression of its critics have assumed a. Pitch. You can find out more about Susan at our website, susan-neiman.com. That's N-E-I-M-A-N.com. One final question for you, Susan, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. We call our final question the question from hell. It's the question we will hate to ask, you will hate to answer, or maybe our audience will hate your response. You point out uh, about this ignoring the entire tradition of Jewish universalism, which is as old as the biblical verse that enjoins Jews to remember that we were strangers in Egypt, as you were pointing out before. It's the tradition of the prophets, as well as the German Jewish luminaries from Moses Mendelssohn to Karl Marx, to Albert Einstein, to Hannah Arendt, whose absence from the Federal Republic is regularly bemoaned. So what impact has Israeli nationalism had on the Jewish universalism of the prophets? Um, That's not a question from hell. I didn't have time to listen to your program since you asked, because I've just been doing too much. That's not a question from hell. Um, Look, There are two traditions within Judaism, and both of them are anchored in the Bible. And we also remember both of them, those of us who are not biblical scholars, and I'm certainly not, um, uh, at Pesach. We talk about it at the Haggadah. One is, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. The other is, um, remember that a tribe rose up to uh, exterminate you, and in every generation they will do so again. Now, I actually asked my rabbi, because I'm going to use this in a piece that I'm writing, um, I had remembered that the tribe was called Amalek, and it's true. It was called Amalek, and that's in the Bible, um, And uh, but it's not in the Haggadah, Okay. And that is also a piece of Jewish tradition. It's a nationalist tradition rather than a universalist one. And it's a tradition that says they are always out to get us and we can only protect and stick to our tribe. That's all we can do. And the one is based on fear, and I understand Jewish fear. As I said, I grew up with it as a child in Georgia. Um, And the other is based on morality and hope. And I did ask my rabbi, I said, can we reconcile these traditions by, you know, there's claims that the Bible was written by four people and that different passages have been attributed to different authors and different styles. And he said, no, Susan, that is the civil war that has the, the Jewish people 
uh, have been fighting ever since we came into being. Um, Netanyahu used the word Amalek in talking about the Palestinians. So, I mean, um, Netanyahu has clearly made himself part of uh, the nationalist Jewish tradition. The reason he got into politics was to stop the Oslo uh, process, okay? And uh, Yitzhak Rabin's widow said to his, to the end of her life, that Netanyahu was responsible for both killing her husband and killing the peace process. Um, he was at the head of demonstrations where people had photoshopped Robin in, you know, SS uniform and were screaming to um, murder him. And one of those people is now Minister of Security in Netanyahu's government, Itamar Ben-Gvir. So um, Netanyahu positioned himself very early on as somebody in the Jewish nationalist tradition. But with this latest government, he came way out for it. And by saying we're fighting Amalek, he's, you know, he's playing to his furthest right uh, religious theocratic supporters who, you know, don't want women to sit next to men on buses and stuff like that. I mean, we're talking real theocracy uh, um, supported by members of his government that are keeping the government going. So unfortunately, under Netanyahu, uh, and you can also see it by the kinds of people who are his allies, you know, whether it's the right-wing German party or uh, Narendra Modi's government in India, um, he has gone for people who are themselves nationalistic and tribalistic and don't believe in universal human rights. Susan, on that note, thank you so much for being on our show. This is absolutely fascinating writing. When your book, Left Is Not Woke, came out, unfortunately, I was going through a lot of medical issues and I was not able to get an interview request out to you, but I really wanted to talk to you about that book as well. I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today. This well, has let, been... me tell, let me tell you, Chuck, there's another chance because it's coming out in an expanded edition in paperback at the end of March. Okay, so, so... I'm going to put that on a calendar right now in March 2024. Look End for, of March. Okay. Yeah. And, and look for a really annoying email from me. <laughs> well, it's not annoying. You're a great person to talk to. So thanks for the interview. All right. Thank you very much, Susan. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. This is not the media. This is hell. And you're definitely not going to hear a conversation like the one we just had with <laughs> Susan in the establishment media here in the U.S. If you just learned from our talk with uh, Susan that only focused uh, about only focusing on the worst aspects of history and how that limits our understanding of history and what can be learned from it. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. And our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanksgiving is just weird. It's based on a myth, a story people in the United States tell their children so they don't feel bad about the indigenous genocide committed in the creation of the United States. For indigenous, it's a national day of mourning for the culture, lives, and ways of living eradicated by mostly white men. 
Land they would have gladly shared was stolen from them, and Americans have the audacity to have a holiday thanking the people for the land that was stolen. Not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with the act of giving thanks. That is, when giving thanks is not perverted as a way to deny genocide. There's also nothing wrong with mourning, as we all need to take time to grieve. Far too often, as we have seen recently, in moments of great loss, we lash out with vengeance instead of taking the time we desperately need to heal. So maybe we need a different kind of holiday this time of year. And I consider that what the far right would call a war on Thanksgiving on our most recent Patreon podcast. Also on Patreon, we played a conversation from 2006 with a colleague of prominent human rights lawyer Mario Joseph, who was one uh, uh, who one of our guests last week, Pooja Bhatia, mentioned while working as a human rights attorney in Haiti that she had worked with him. That colleague of Mario Joseph's is Brian Cannon, who at the time was director of the same institute for Institute and same Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, where Mario Joseph worked. Brian was on back in 2006 and celebrated his birthday this weekend to talk about an article he had just posted, a reminder of the centuries-long project to do right by the people of Haiti, who are still being punished for rising up against colonialism, slavery, and white supremacy back in 1804. That article was titled, Justice for Haiti, but the only way you can hear our first assault in the war on Thanksgiving in a 17-year-old conversation on the seemingly endless fight for freedom and democracy and justice in Haiti, as well as get a discount code for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support, and you can ask a question from hell of me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, and to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers is by, you guessed it, subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell Chris remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding on Discord. Well, the question from hell is what obvious reality do you insist in denying in spite of all evidence a good question from hell I liked and the first one I don't know I'm not too sharp on my Latin but it says cogito ergo en inferno sum I, I looked it up before. Now I can't remember what it means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've got to go, go back and look at my notes. What is it again? Cognito? Cogito. Okay. C-O-G-I-T-O. Uh-huh. The second word is ergo. E-R-G-O. Sum. And then what's the last word? Oh, inferno sum. Inferno sum. Okay. Or sum, maybe. I'm not. Yeah, like, yeah. I can work my Latin accent. Exactly. Were you raised Catholic by chance? Uh, like like diet Catholic, where like they went, <laughs> my dad tried to be Catholic, but then he got lazy, and so I kind of sometimes went to church. But I did go to Catholic school for grade school. So, all right, let's go to the let's see. Uh, let's go to the next one because I can't find it, uh, the definition yet either. So gotcha. go ahead. First one, and then the other one's from Goofus, who answers obviously that this is hell. <laughs> it means I think, therefore I am in hell. That's what it means, which is a great response to this week's uh, question from Mel. Any more responses? Yeah, on there's one from Kim where they go, No, no, I really will. This week, perhaps, make something with the lentils I bought March 2020. <laughs> is that it for Discord? 
Uh, for Discord, that is it. All right, so we'll get to more of your responses to this week's question from hell following our guest tomorrow, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. As always, wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise that you can find by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. You can post it in our Discord community or at our Patreon page. All sorts of places where you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. And we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. And now, Dr. Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself, who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. In his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. One of the core principles of being a historian is, as I noted in earlier segments, being neutral towards the facts. And that is, of course, only an aspiration. Staying neutral is rarely ever really possible completely. But being aware of biases and pointing those biases out is generally a thing that I think is useful when practicing history in public. And when it comes to the history of Israel and the histories of the people that connected to that piece of land, being aware of one's own biases and also of the various numerous biases of other people is quite important. And since I'm not a citizen and also because I'm a German citizen who wants neither to be branded as a terrorist sympathizer here or as an anti-Semite there, I need to be very careful with these things. Uh, funny enough, I would think my biases towards Israel are much less inflected by my Germanness these days and to some degree. I mean, they are, but not in the way that works uh, for most of my countrymen and women. I do believe us Germans have a certain historical responsibility towards the Jewish people. And if a borderline fascist regi regime arises from these people that purports to speak for all Jews, I think that's an issue worth pointing out and criticizing. I thoroughly reject any notions of me myself being anti-Semitic in doing so. Granted, it is not up to me. It is never up to the person accused of a thing to reject the thing they're accused of. If someone accuses you of racism, you usually won't get away with saying that you are not a racist because of this, that, or the other thing. And just because I worked at Berlin's Jewish Museum for years uh, does not make me incapable of being anti-Semitic, just as having Jewish friends does not. However, I would say that my training as a historian, my work in Jewish history, and my being German at least gives me a specifically informed perspective that... Well, if you think that is an anti-Semitic perspective, I can't really do much about that. And what I'm trying to do here with these segments is educating people on the difficulties of the history of the Jewish people and their relationship to Zionism and by extension, the country of Israel. Whether that is a successful endeavor is up to your judgment. But seriously, if you try to accuse me of, you know, being somehow sympathetic to terrorism and Hamas, you're really not paying attention to what I'm saying. Anyway, next year in Jerusalem, this is a phrase that many Jewish families say or sing at the end of the Passover cedar ritual and on Yom Kippur each year. It is a phrase that recalls the Jewish people's desire to return to the homeland, a desire for the end of the Jewish diaspora. In a more strictly religious notion, it is also a desire for witnessing the rebuilding of the temple and the coming of the Jewish Messiah. 
but the phrase is also relatively young with the earliest historical evidence pointing to its use emerging in the 15th century CE among Ashkenazim living in German-speaking Europe at the time. The notion of diaspora, the notion of longing for a return to the Holy Land that was according to the Hebrew Bible giving to the Jewish people by God himself can be seen in this phrase. Next year in Jerusalem is a concept that is at the heart of the Zionist project. The phrase does not mean the same thing to all Jewish people alike, I should be sure to point out. Like any religion, Judaism is far from being monolithic. While some perceive of next year in Jerusalem as an implicit call to action to further the Zionist cause, others will read the phrase more as an appeal to an abstract form of collectiveness. A reminder that although the Jewish people are scattered across the world, they are still ultimately all one people, one religion. But the notion of next year in Jerusalem is still the core tenet of Zionism regardless. Last week I talked about how Zionism developed as a Jewish nationalism, a fealty to the Jewish nation that had yet to develop a state of its own in the 19th century. And since next year in Jerusalem has been a phrase and used much earlier in the 19th century, it is safe to say that a desire by the Jewish people to return to their homeland has been significantly older than the Zionist movement as such as well. Not that what is considered the Jewish homeland was ever entirely devoid of Jewish people. Due to outside factors, however, they were degraded to a minority there. Especially after the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in the year 70 CE and the Simon Bar Kokhba revolt in the 130 CE, both of which ended with Jewish people being pushed out of their lands. Important to note here is uh, that, as I said, there were always Jewish folks living in, the, in these regions afterwards, regardless of how many others were exiled. And also people other than Jews have literally always, and I need to point out here that us historians are quite allergic to that term always, so it should be noteworthy when I use that phrase here, lived in that region as well. In the preceding centuries, a few local communities had attempted to return or in some cases actually successfully returned to the Holy Land. But those were only small groups of people and far from an organized effort to return all or as many Jews as possible to the region. In the 19th century, efforts arose around the world to gather Jewish people for a return to Palestine then. Some of these earlier efforts in the 19th century were driven by non-Jews, and as I mentioned last week, those were more often than not motivated by anti-Semitism rather than out of goodwill towards the Jewish people. Ilan Pape writes in 10 Myths About Israel that many Christian European rulers and statesmen regarded their Jewish subjects as alien, as incapable of assimilation, and as constantly representing a state within a state. Jews have, for time immemorial, been accused of harboring a split loyalty, uh, one to the polity they reside in and one towards Judaism itself. This was what many European rulers and statesmen feared and both implicitly and explicitly accused Jewish people of. Therefore, these non-Jewish statesmen thought it a great idea to facilitate the return of the Jews to their homeland so that they could then either be their own problem or someone else's. It was both Americans, where none other than John Adams advocated for a return of the Jews to Israel, but especially Brits during the 19th century, who wished to not only support, but actively facilitate this. The British Lord Shaftesbury, 
what a name, began to advocate for a British presence in Palestine so that the Brits could then clear the land for Jewish resettlement. Shaftesbury was, however, not just driven by secular motives, but also by religious ones, because the 19th century saw an emergence of evangelical Christian Zionism. And these Christian Zionists, well, they weren't called that at the time, they were called Restorationists, but that's a different story, held and they still hold the belief that restoring Jewish rule in the Levant is a precondition for the return of Jesus Christ and the subsequent biblical apocalypse. In the United States specifically, this belief mingled with dispensationalist Christian movements, uh, which basically prepare for the end times, the end of the world, and the judging of humanity by God, all of these things. The remarkable elements here are that this ideology also contains a, horrif a horrifyingly anti-Semitic streak. The Jewish people, the restoration of Israel and the rebuilding of the temple are for these people simply necessary steps, instrumental in having Christ return. And the Jews themselves? Well, according to biblical prophecy, a third will convert to Christianity and ascend to heaven. The rest, well, they will burn in hell forever. Uh, not all Jewish folks were super gung-ho on abandoning where they lived to return to a country they never saw. Partic particularly reform congregations, both in Europe and the United States, rejected calls for a restoration of Zion in the 19th century. For example, the Pittsburgh Conference of Reformed Judaism declared that they no longer considered themselves a nation in the people sense, but, quote, a religious community. They rejected the notion of the creation of a specifically Jewish state. And as early as the 1850s, first concrete efforts were then put in motion for Jewish people to purchase real estate in Palestine to resettle there. Uh, for example, a British financier, Sir Moses Montefiore, was uh, one of the first to donate large amounts of money towards such an effort. At roughly the same time, Eastern European Jews, specifically in the Russian Empire, experienced a wave of violent anti-Jewish pogroms in the early 1880s. Tsar Alexander II's assassination in 1881 had been blamed on Russian Jews, which then caused this widespread backlash and in turn a wave of Jewish expulsion and emigration. In this context, close progenitors to the Zionist movement formed uh, uh, formed here, which then began to organize collective emigration of Jewish people from Eastern Europe to Syria and Israel. Uh, the Yemeni, so and then also a, a con, a, an exodus, a, Emigration uh, uh, of, of Jewish people happened in Yemen, and this Yemeni exodus had less of a direct outward cause, but it appeared concurrent with the Eastern European emigration uh, uh, wave. And the result was a growing but sizable Jewish minority in the Ottoman uh, in, in Ottoman Palestine that founded agricultural communities and uh, were funded largely by European benefactors and collections of alms in Jewish communities in Europe. The more or less direct result of the massive pogroms in Eastern Europe then was what is referred to as the first Aliyah, uh, the first um, wave of immigration of Jews back to Israel, in which about 25,000 Jewish people migrated from Yemen and across Eastern Europe into Ottoman-controlled Palestine. Uh, neither the Ottomans nor the local Palestinian Arabs were too thrilled about this development, not necessarily so much because of these newcomers being Jewish. The problem was that they came to the land, pushed out locals, and sustained themselves with material support from Europeans, from these European benefactors. The Ottomans saw this as basically European meddling in their own affairs. 
Eastern European Jewish incursions into places like Jerusalem uh, read to the Muslim world like an attack on the sanctity of the holy sites of Islam in the city. And this was made worse by commentary from British Palestine boosters like the British envoy to Jerusalem, James Finn, uh, who recalled the glory days of the Christian Crusades and connected this notion to the British facilitation of Jewish settlement in the region. And this is where a Swiss journalist by the name of Theodore Herzl comes into play, who essentially founded what we today understand as distinctly political Zionism. Herzl organized the first Zionist Congress in Basel in Switzerland in 1897, at which uh, the foundations for the creation of a Jewish nation state were laid. Many people will begin the history of Zionism at this point, and I hope I could make it clear that at least some of the core tenets of Zionism long predate Herzl, and also that many of the later Zionist movement's bedfellows had not necessarily the best intentions towards the Jewish people in mind when advocating for a Jewish homeland. Next week, I will need to clarify a concept that gets thrown around frequently when Israel comes, comes up, and that is the concept of settler colonialism, which is its own can of hellish worms, but vital to understanding when talking about what's going on there, but also vital to understanding what's going on in the United States, which is itself a markedly settler colonial project. Looking forward to hearing that next Monday. Uh, really great pieces the last few weeks. So thank you very much, Sebastian. And uh, enjoy your next the rest of your week. Enjoy your upcoming holiday. What are you doing for the holiday? Are you having people come over? No, we're just we're just by our, by ourselves here. Yeah. Well, just we're, we're just going to get like a rotisserie chicken and uh, and uh, you know just prepare for the the next steps in our lives. Um, uh, I, I think it is. Uh, I think I can announce now that we're we're expecting uh, we're expecting. You're expecting. Expect Tell me yes, what you're expecting. expecting. Uh, a little girl. Oh, wow! Congratulations, sir. That's fantastic. Wow. Well, enjoy your holiday. Enjoy your upcoming holiday because the rest of them you're gonna have to be buying stuff for your kid. <laughs> oh man, yeah. All right. Well, uh, give All my right. best to everybody. Uh, miss will. you, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, uh, wow, that's some breaking news right there. Everybody, beginning Monday, December 4th, and running throughout all of December, as well as during the first week of the New Year, because I didn't realize that New Year's is on a Monday. There's no way I'm going to force people to come back in here on January 2nd, the day after getting over your hangover. Anyway, uh, this is how we'll be live streaming, podcasting, and airing the very best of 2023 as determined by the listeners and staff of This Is Hell. Tell us what your favorite interviews were, you, who your favorite guests were, and if we play any of those conversations that you picked, we'll thank you personally on air. You can leave your favorite or favorites by, you can tell us what they are by emailing them to us at chuck at this is hell.com dming us via x at this is hell radio posted in our discord community under our announcement in the general category message it to us via facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio or leave your reply in the comments or at our facebook group page welcome to the hellhole or you can even just share it with us via the announcement on patreon we also hope to see all of you on Wednesday, December 20th, Winter Solstice Eve for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which will be held during our regularly scheduled office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. 
beginning around 6 that evening and going till uh, who knows when. If you work in an office that doesn't have a holiday office party, make our holiday office party yours. If you do work in an office, but you just don't like the people who you work with and you don't really want to party with them over the holidays, bring the people who you do want to party with to our holiday office party. Or if you just don't have an office and you work with people remotely, Make our holiday office party your holiday office party. I will not be at This Is Hell office hours this Wednesday, Thanksgiving Eve, which at one time before the pandemic was the biggest bar night of the year. But apparently, that's no longer the case. However, if you are the type who still does go out to bars the night before Thanksgiving, Celebrating with family and friends who maybe are in from out of town, partying with people you haven't seen in a while, and free from the prying eyes of parents, or kids for that matter, drop by Carrie's Lounge this Wednesday as DJ Dirty Mixon will be spinning the best in true school, hip-hop, house, and more. That's DJ Dirty Mixon, MXN, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. And thanks to Carrie's for hosting all of our parties throughout the year. Chris, uh, what is Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Uh, well, Jeff suspects the COVID lockdown broke humanity's brains. That's I would suspect that as well. And who is our upcoming guest here on the show? Poet and essayist Kay Gabriel will talk about her N Plus One magazine article, The Anti-Trans Panic and the Crusade Against Teachers. The goal is to crumble popular support for public education. And also, Kay is author of a Queen in Bucks County. That is an amazing article. I'm really looking forward to having her on the show tomorrow. If you haven't had a chance yet, go check out her article at N Plus One. Thanks to Chris Colfan for producing and to Dan Kugler for shadowing Chris. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz, pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>